Today on the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hi, I'm Rick Samprin. Minister of Environment and Climate Change Catherine McKenna is in Hamilton today for a roundtable discussion with Mayor Fred Eisenberger. They're talking about Canada's changing climate report. We also dive deep into Robert Mueller's testimony before Congress, and we get some reaction to President Trump's reaction. Maxime Bernier saying that he's going to cap immigration in Canada if elected as Prime Minister. And the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation in tough with the provincial government and school boards association as they try to negotiate a new contract enjoy the podcast today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml to begin the day however environment minister the honorable Catherine mckenna is scheduled to meet with hamilton mayor fred eisenberger and other local mayors for a roundtable discussion at city hall at 10 o'clock this morning on the menu climate change and in particular they'll discuss the recent canada's changing climate report and the implications of climate change on Canadians. Ms. McKenna joins us in studio, and we're gracious for her time. Thanks for coming into the studio this morning. I know it's a busy day for you. Give us some background on how officials at Environment and Climate Change Canada compiled this report. Well, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of discussion about climate change, and internationally we're seeing what the impacts are in, in good science internationally. But there was a decision made that um, by our scientists and government, and that's across government, Environment and Climate Change Canada, but also Natural Resource Canada and um, Fisheries and Oceans, that we needed to understand what was happening here in Canada. And so this was a report um, that showed that Canada's warming at twice the global average, three times or more in the north. And it really says, like, we have a choice. Um, either we can be ambitious in taking climate action here in Canada and abroad, and we can minimize the impacts. We're not going to stop climate change, but minimize the impacts. Or uh, we aren't ambitious, and then we're really going to pay the, the, the consequences. And it's interesting because part of the reason I'm here is to do a briefing um, you know, to let folks know, the mayor, but uh, mayors, but also um, folks in Hamilton know, like, what are the impacts of climate change that we're going to see? And a lot of this is Canadians and, and folks in Hamilton area know this already. Uh, we're seeing extreme heat. Um, and you know, if you look at days over 30 degrees could go from 17 to 56 a year. So that's almost two months of extremely hot days. That's very worrying um, for elderly, for very young people, anyone with respiratory diseases. And you're going to have to think about that um, when you build, including affordable housing, making sure that you have air conditioning um, or some way for folks to stay cool. It also is going to put a huge um, uh, load on the grid. Um, so you're going to have to think about blackouts and how do you manage that. Um, with incre- increasing heat, you're going to see um, out more algae blooms. I know there's blooms going on right mm-hmm. now, but you'll see more of that. So having a huge impact on Lake Ontario and folks who rely on Lake Ontario. Um, there's going to be more invasive species, uh, ticks with West Nile. Um, there's a whole range of impacts. Even the, the flash flooding you'll see, you're going to have to think about the sewage system and how you're going to manage that. And so it is really important that Canadians understand um, the science behind climate change, but also what does it mean practically and what can you do to protect against it? What kind of response do you expect to hear from the roundtable discussion today? And will any of it be a request for funding from the government to say, hey, uh, you know, we need funding to mitigate some of these environmental impacts? 
Well, I think it'll be a really good discussion. I've had these uh, roundtables across the country. I was in on Vancouver Island, obviously very different if you're a coastal community. Um, so I think there'll be very practical questions, which I think is useful because, you know, if you're a mayor of a city, you can't deny that climate change is happening. You have to protect your residents. Um, so I think there'll be good discussions. Uh, Hamilton declared a climate emergency. We did that nationally as well. Sadly, the Conservative Party did not support us. Um, but we're, uh, you know, we're clearly going to have a good discussion. And I, I'm sure there will be discussions about how do you adapt to the impacts of climate change and what more can we do to mitigate. And we have a $2 billion fund, adaptation fund. So we've been investing in adaptation across the country. But we're really going to have to think hard about what more we need to do. And it's interesting because you you see different groups coming out now talking about climate change. One of the biggest ones is our, our insurance companies because they're the ones that they look at the data and say, okay, we really do have to be serious. I, I live in the Ottawa area. I, I represent Ottawa Centre. But in uh, the national capital region, we had flooding. It was supposed to be once in a 100-year flood, you know, once every few years. And the cost of flooding, that's the biggest cost now as a result of climate change, uh, is, is enormous. So we certainly have to think hard about this. And we have to make sure we're protecting Canadians and doing our part to take action on climate change. We're seeing those 100-year storms every couple of years in, in Hamilton and Burlington as well, and I'm sure other uh, parts of the country are experiencing those uh, you know, those lows as well. Uh, you referenced the report in terms of temperature, obviously Canada warming at twice the rate uh, as uh, in compared to uh, you know other nations. The average annual temperature has risen uh, 2.3 degrees since 1948 in the north. How concerned are you about that statistic? Look, the north, it is devastating. Uh, I was in a place called Taktayaktat uh, in the Arctic, and it's literally falling into the sea. So they have a, a confluence of different things that are happening. They have thawing permafrost, um, so that makes, you know, makes it easier for you know, the land to fall into the sea, but they're also being hit by extreme storms. And so for, the, for folks who live in the Arctic, it's existential. It's it's about their you know it's about their communities it's about their culture, um, and they are often the ones that have had the least to do with climate change. Um, they're living in very remote areas, but you know you see this across the country. We saw forest fires starting earlier uh, this year um, in northern Ontario, in the west, um, and. You know, the thing that is very challenging is that you have conservative politicians who don't seem to want to expect, accept the science behind climate change, the links between the extreme weather and climate change, which are clear, um, and also what works. Um, we've seen cuts across the board by Doug Ford, um, and we're seeing, you know, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, joining in. Um, and, and then you have Andrew Scheer, who doesn't have a serious climate plan. And the reality is that we need to acknowledge what's happening so we can protect people against it and so we can be serious in acting. And so that's what I see my role as. My role is meeting with folks um, who want to understand the science behind climate change, who want to understand what this is going to mean and how do we protect against this. And of course, how do we all work together? I don't want to get too partisan, but it, it uh, you know the perception is the conservatives uh, want to save money as opposed to saving the environment. Is that a fair statement, or am I crossing the line there? Uh, well, look, I don't think anyone's saving any money by not taking action on climate change. We've had insurance claims go up from four hundred million uh, a year to almost two billion in ten years. 
Um, so there's a huge cost to climate change. I mean, I think they try to frame it in that. Um, and they often are misleading Canadians. So we have put a price on pollution. We've said it cannot be free to pollute. We want to create incentives for people to choose clean solutions, whether it's a smart thermostat in your home or look at an electric vehicle or carpooling or public transit. Um, but, you know, they, they want to say that this is just about us making money. By law, all the money has to go back. And 80% in Ontario, 80% of families are better off because they, they got more money back. We made big polluters pay. Um, we've created the incentive for people to look at clean solutions. And you get more money back through the tax system. But, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there by conservative politicians, and it makes no sense. It would be as if your house is burning and you're saying, well, I'm just not going to pay attention to it because maybe it'll just stop. Um, or maybe I'll throw some gas on it and make it worse. Instead of just saying, okay, we all need to take action. And we can do this. The thing I want also folks to know is that we have solutions. Um, in our transportation sector, we can do better. We can have better public transportation. We're investing in public transportation. I really hope uh, Hamilton decides to go forward with LRT. We have better options out there. Um, electric vehicles. Uh, we can, you know, how we heat and cool our homes. We can be a lot smarter about that. Um, so we didn't get out of the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. We got smarter, and this is what we need to do. And we see kids marching in the streets, and I see that. There are kids from Hamilton, but across Canada, who are saying, you know what, you politicians have to step up. You have to protect the only planet we have. Uh, and I, I think that we do have to take on that responsibility. And as I say, we've got the science. We know the science says we've got, you know, we've got a climate emergency. We've got the tools. We know what works, putting a price on pollution, but phasing out coal, investing in renewables, investing in clean technology, energy efficiency. And we have a plan to do that. Um, and look, there's going to be a choice in the election coming up. Um, and it, and when I look at Hamilton, and I'm from Hamilton, I love Hamilton. Um, I come here as much as I can. And uh, I was actually out last night having dinner with my, with my parents. Um, it's amazing to see uh, everything that's going on in Hamilton. Um, there's been a lot of cuts that you've seen, um, whether it's to uh, investments there the, by the Ford government, well, by the previous Liberal government in Ontario for electric bus pilot project, for a climate um, change center at Mohawk College, um, for uh, affordable housing that was more energy efficient. I mean, making cuts that make no sense. I know we're pressed for time here, but uh, maybe just a couple more minutes. Uh, how big of an election issue is environment, climate change going to be? Well, uh, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors in my riding, and I also travel across the country, and Canadians are talking a lot about climate change. I think that seeing the weather, uh, the extreme weather, um, has really made it clear that we've got a real challenge. So I really hope it's one of the top issues. But I think it's, it should also be framed as an economic issue. Climate change isn't just an issue for the environment. It's an issue for the economy. We're paying the costs. We also have an opportunity to find the solutions. It's a national security issue. Um, it's a health issue. And of course, it's an issue about what are we going to do for future generations. So I think I, I think it is good that we are having a serious discussion on this. And the good news is, I mean, Canadians, when I talk to them, they want to take action on climate change. But of course, they want life to be affordable and they want good jobs. And you can do that. You can take action on climate change where you're more energy efficient, you save money, um, 
but you also do what we need to do to protect our planet. And either we pay the costs, we, you know, we, we take action now, minimize the costs, or we're just going to pay huge costs later. And that's going to be our kids and grandkids paying those costs. Last question for you. Canada isn't the biggest polluter on the planet. China, the U.S. would be uh, the top two. The European Union in, is in there as well. But what is our country doing to maybe lobby or persuade or coerce other nations to do better? So, I, so this is a good question, and I get asked this a lot. Like, why, you know, why should Canada do things if you know other countries aren't there? So, a couple things. Canada is one of the largest emitters. We're in the top ten per capita per person. We are at the very top, um, and that countries around the world are acting. But the way the Paris Agreement works, and I was involved in the negotiations is that every, every single country has to step up and do their part. It doesn't work where you can say, I'm not going to do anything unless you do anything. That is the tragedy of the commons. We don't want that. Everyone has to act. And for Canada to do what I do at the negotiations, which is hold everyone to account, we just got rules around accountability and transparency, we have to show that we are serious on climate change. But to put it in a real-life analogy... When you go to McDonald's, say you go to the drive-thru at McDonald's, you get your food, uh, you finish it, you know, you don't find Canadians all throwing the food out the window because each person is like, well, I'm 0.0, you know, 0.1% of this. Because if everyone did that, then you've got a huge mess that we need to do our part in Canada. Canadians understand that we need to be responsible. Um, we need to hold other count- countries to account, and that's what we're doing through the Paris Agreement. Everyone has to report transparently. And you're seeing huge action around the world. But there's a huge economic opportunity. It's $26 trillion. It's the biggest economic opportunity of our lifetime to find these solutions. And I've seen them across the board, small businesses, big businesses being uh, more energy efficient. Look, even you know, Stelco and DeFasco, you're seeing the steel industry here having, you know, really thinking about how do they reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that also saves you money, but it does right by the environment. So. I'm very optimistic. We're con- going to continue doing the work here um, in Canada that we need to do, working with cities. If provinces, you know, Doug Ford doesn't want to act, we have a lot of partners with cities and businesses and Ontarians. Uh, and we're going to keep on pushing around the world because we only have one planet. Love to continue the conversation, but I know you're pressed for time. You have a busy schedule today. You're in Guelph later on today. You have this yeah. roundtable that's coming up at 10 uh, with Mayor Eisenberger and others. Thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of the day. Oh, it's always great to be back in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Mueller answered most questions in short sentences yesterday, referring uh, Congress members to his report and choosing not to read his report aloud. But he did clarify a couple of things yesterday. Mueller said the interference was not a hoax and it was not an isolated episode, saying, quote, they're doing it as we sit here. Mueller had made it clear in his report that he could not exonerate President Donald Trump on obstruction of justice in the probe. But yesterday, a former special counsel said that Trump could be charged once he leaves the White House. Very interesting. Let's bring in our next guest. His name is Richard Painter, professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota. And he joins us now. Richard, how are you? Ah, very well. Uh, Recently, well, I guess under the circumstances. (laughs) Well, probably probably a lot better than uh, than, uh, President Trump today. Well, yes, uh, this is a uh, very, very difficult situation for the United States because we have a special prosecutor who did his job, laid it out, a 400-page report. Uh, he never should have been called in the Congress uh, because it's all explained in the report. Uh, it's very clear 
that the uh, special prosecutor did not uh, reach a, a decision about whether Donald Trump had committed a crime because the position of the Justice Department is that a sitting president cannot be indicted for any crime. So what the special prosecutor did, what Robert Mueller did, is laid out all of the facts in the second half of the report that show very, very clearly that Donald Trump obstructed justice. And that is a matter that will have to be taken up by prosecutors after Donald Trump leaves office. But there's a second purpose of this report, which is to tell the United States House of Representatives what the facts are, because it is the duty of the House of Representatives to open an impeachment inquiry and impeach the president for obstruction of justice. The facts are laid out right there in the second part of the report, along with the first part of the report that shows extensive contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians, even though those contacts, that collusion, did not amount to a criminal conspiracy that would result in additional indictment. Do you believe yesterday's testimony by Mr. Mueller was more or less a show that Democrats and Republicans were putting on for the public in advance of the 2020 election? Well, I, I think the Democrats mistakenly thought he was going to come in there like a movie actor and dramatize this thing. And that's not Robert Mueller. Uh, uh, Robert Mueller would have been a complete bust in Hollywood. Uh, he never would have a TV reality show like The Apprentice, which maybe that's why he's not in the White House. Uh, that's unfortunate for our country, uh, because Robert Mueller is a loyal public servant who's done his job. He is an excellent prosecutor. He laid out the facts. Uh, but trying to bring him in, asking these questions, uh, it, did, it really didn't advance the ball, because it's all there in the report. Uh, now, that being said, uh, there are a lot of Americans who don't want to read the report, so uh, to have an oral uh, summary or back and forth and reading the sections of the report, uh, if that's what we need to get the point across, okay. Uh, but that's all we got from it, what's in the report. The Republicans embarrassed themselves uh, by attacking Robert Mueller, attacking the people who worked on his investigation, and ranting on and on about Fusion GPS and uh, Hillary Clinton and all sorts of things that have absolutely nothing to do with a Russian infiltration of the American election. Your reaction to President Trump's spin, he's still on, you know, this is a witch hunt, no collusion, no obstruction. Well, that's exactly what he's going to do. And uh, if the Democrats and the House of Representatives don't have the courage to uh, open an impeachment inquiry, uh, which is what they did with President Nixon in 1973, with, with less evidence, I'd have to say, than they have here with respect to Trump. But if the Democrats are uh, too timid to open an impeachment inquiry, uh, Trump's just going to beat up on him. He's just going to keep hammering away and saying that he's vindicated. And come the 2020 election, he, he's going to have a point there because he's going to say, look, if I were really guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives would impeach me because it's a constitutional obligation. Uh, and that's true. Uh, so uh, really, the, the, he's going to keep on doing that until the Democrats in the House get their act together and impeach him. Our guest is uh, Richard Painter, professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. Uh, you mentioned the word impeachment. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is slowly ramping up that talk. With 2020 uh, just over a year away in terms of the election, is is impeachment uh, an inquiry or an, an actual impeachment feasible or even worth it right now? 
uh, well, it's the obligation of the House and it's, it's to open the impeachment inquiry and then vote out articles of impeachment if he committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, that's what the Constitution says. So if they don't vote out articles of impeachment, uh, that means that whatever he did, in the opinion of the majority of the House, uh, which is controlled by Democrats, fell short of high crimes and misdemeanors. That's the clear message, and that's what he's going to say in 2020. And he's going to use that to attack the Democratic candidate who is running against. And all of the leading Democratic candidates for president have called for his impeachment. So he'll just use that against them if uh, uh, if Nancy Pelosi is not willing to provide uh, support on this. Uh, so uh, opening impeachment inquiry is very important right away. If Nancy Pelosi keeps delaying this and it gets close and close to the election, then the Democrats are going to be vulnerable to the accusation that impeachment is a political ploy just to win the election. And that's not what it's about. This is not about politics. This is about the Constitution and the fact that it's laid out right there in the second part of the Mueller report that Donald Trump obstructed justice. Those facts are abundantly clear. And the House of Representatives needs to get going and do its job and let Robert Mueller take a vacation because he did his job. One more question for you. Uh, Bob Mueller said that Trump could be charged once he leaves the White House. Do you expect that to happen? Uh, that would be uh, something for an independent prosecutor to determine. Uh, and a new independent prosecutor could be appointed, should be appointed uh, by an incoming administration to step into Robert Mueller's shoes. It should, however, be an independent prosecutor. I do not want to hear political candidates for president talking about uh, charging, criminally charging Donald Trump. And I was upset when Kamala Harris was talking that way a few weeks ago. That is unacceptable. And the reason is that's how we got into this to begin with, with President Trump being allowed, then candidate Trump, to talk about criminally charging Hillary Clinton. In the United States and in any democracy, uh, the victor in an election does not turn around and criminally prosecute the loser. But that being said, if Donald Trump committed serious crimes, he can and should be prosecuted by an independent prosecutor free of political influence from either political party. Fascinating times still lie ahead. Mr. Painter, thanks for the time today. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You're fake news, and you're one of the most. You're fake news. Again, you're fake news, and you're right at the top of the list also. Let me just tell you, go back to what, it's not what he said. Read his correction. Read his correction. No, no, a very dumb and very unfair question. That's why people don't deal with you, because you're not an honest reporter. He didn't say that at all. You're untruthful when you ask me. You are untruthful. And if you were ever truthful, you'd be able to write the truth. No, that was just part of the post-Muller testimony media scrum yesterday when President Donald Trump held court with reporters accusing many of being Fake news themselves. Brian J. Karam is the executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers, White House reporter for Playboy, and political analyst at CNN, and joins us now. Brian, how are you? Uh, pretty good. How are you doing this morning? Not too bad. Uh, interesting scrum, but uh, more the same, I guess. <laughs> they, they're all interesting. <laughs> There's never one that isn't interesting. That's uh, If you want to say anything positive, if you want to put a positive spin on the Trump administration, it's never dull. Are, are those instances uncomfortable for a reporter? Because you're there to do a job. 
we are there to do a job, and I've said that many times. We don't. He calls us fake media. He calls us out. But look, we're stuck with this guy for four years at least, and um, we're just trying to do our job. We're just trying to ask questions and get answers. And he says that you know we're the problem, but he wants to make it about us and not him because he doesn't want to answer the tough questions. So whenever he can switch it and flip it, he, he's going to do it and, and go after the press. And he did that. That particular line of questioning began as he walked up to the, um, to the microphones yesterday. And I, I, was, I think I was the first to say, Are, do you fear being indicted? And he, uh, after you leave office, and he uh, wouldn't answer the question. Then Hallie Jackson got a question from NBC, and so she re-asked it, and he got upset with her. Then further on down the line, somebody asked it again, and all of these were in reference to him being indicted for obstruction after he left office. Finally, for some reason, after he had called, he had pointed like to four or five different reporters, myself included, and going, you're fake news, you're fake news, you're fake news. For some reason, he turned to me and goes, you're being nice today. Go ahead, I'll take a question from you. And I'm going, okay. <laughs> so I just took Mueller out of the, the, the uh, question and said, listen, whatever Mueller said, whatever you think he said, after you leave office, do you not fear being uh, indicted for obstruction of justice? And he, he actually answered it and said, uh, no, because I've not done anything wrong. But that whole line of questioning, there were four or five of us who went after him on that particular issue, um, produced the greatest amount of ire from the president. And he was in a feisty mood anyway, because... Um, about 15 minutes before he came out to the South Lawn, I had gone up to the uh, press office and asked if he was going to speak today as he left. And I was told by one of the senior communication officers there, he said, oh, he's coming right at you. He's in a good mood. He wants to talk. So he was <laughs> he already thought he had won the Mueller war, so he was ready to gloat. Wow. Uh, as I said, more of the same. It, it seems like he is uh, just playing political dodgeball and doesn't really answer any of the questions and, and is making news by proclaiming fake news. Yes, he lies. Um, we have, you know, the big one of the big problems right now in the press corps is how do you approach this? How do you deal with this? Because you, if the president says something, it is news, because he's the president. But when the president continuously lies, how do you take your objective role as a reporter, report the news, and still point out the lies? I maintain mean, the rules have changed a bit, and you have to. Be, I've been calling him out for a while, saying, no, that's a lie, no, no, quit lying. But yeah, I think you have to, because if you don't push back, you're going to be rolled over. And since no one is above the law, no one has a right to bully me. I've, I've been accused of being a bully because I pushed back against them, which is really kind of funny when you think about it. They're the ones with the power. So how can those who merely ask questions be the bully? It's the people who have the power against us that are the bullies. And you have to get used to, you're going to have to develop a thick hide as a reporter, and you still have to do your job, which is ask questions, demand answers. And I don't give... I don't say that it's wrong that the president wants to put his best foot forward. That's what he's, you know, his communication staff is there to do. I just don't expect to be lied to on a daily basis and all the time. Well, I think it was, a, it, it was a, a Ronald Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, who said, 
don't tell us how to stage the news, and we won't tell you how to report the news. And this administration wants to not only tell you how to stage the news, they want to tell you when it's wrong, and then they want you to restage it. We're chatting with uh, Brian J. Karam, Executive Director of Sentinel Newspapers, White House reporter for Playboy, political analyst at CNN. What's more likely, uh, impeachment or charged after he leaves the White House? (laughs) If I had a crystal ball and could figure that one out, I could make a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) I think the the de facto impeachment hearings have already begun. What Jerry Nadler's... um, Representative Jerry Nadler from New York, his his com- committee, which was one of the committees who uh, heard testimony from Mueller yesterday, I think his committee has, def- that the, these are de facto impeachment hearings. And I think the Democrats have a pretty tough uh, road to hoe. They have to decide whether to go after impeachment before or after the election. If they, I guarantee you, if he's reelected and the uh Democrats can maintain control of the House and make any gains in the Senate at all, and especially if they get, if they end up with a majority in the Senate, you'll definitely see impeachment hearings immediately, and they probably will have enough to convict if they have a majority. Um, that, I think, is a foregone conclusion. If they win, if the Democrats win the White House, um, then I, I would suspect that he would face, I would I would almost guess without a doubt that he would face some kind of criminal charges upon leaving, you know, the White House. There, there are those who say the day he leaves the White House in that black SUV um, and gets aboard Air Force One and lands, wherever he lands, there'll be four or five other black SUVs with handcuffs and uh, subpoenas for him. So uh, unless it's North Korea. Because <laughs> well, even then, you never know. You never know. You never know. Korea. That's right, Brian. We g- him as hostage. I don't know if he'd get any money back. But <laughs> You're right, Brian. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, sure. Anytime. Brian J. Karam, executive director, Sentinel Newspapers, White House reporter for Playboy, political analyst at CNN. I think comedian and late night show host uh, Trevor Noah said it best. Listen to this. Under Department of Justice policy, the president could be prosecuted for obstruction of justice crimes. After he leaves office, is correct? True. Whoa. Yeah. According to Robert Mueller, the president can be charged with obstruction of justice once he leaves office. So you know what that means? Trump is never leaving office. (laughs) Yeah. He hears that. The Secret Service is going to be banging on the Oval Office door like, sir, you need to leave. He'd be like, no housekeeping. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier says Canada cannot be the welfare state of the planet. Spoke about immigration at an event last night in Mississauga, vowing to slash immigration and refugee numbers, build a fence to block asylum seekers from walking across the border, and end a program that lets immigrants sponsor their families to join them if he becomes Prime Minister. Let's bring in our next guest, Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, and he joins us now. Mr. Kay, how are you? Hello, Rick. Well, what do you make of Bernier's comments? Maybe we'll just start there. Well, I'll tell you, uh, a little over a year ago, maybe it was a year and a half ago, I was expecting that this issue might become even bigger than I think it is at the moment. Uh, that was at the time when there were the irregular immigrants coming across, um, refugees perhaps, coming across the American border. Uh, Canada benefits, compared to almost every other developed country in the world, 
in that we really we don't have a a land border with a country poorer than us, nor easy access because we've got oceans on either side. So the uh, the concern about an unlimited number of refugees entering the country is something that probably should be less of an issue here than almost anywhere else, at least uh, among uh, among advanced economic OECD uh, kind of countries. There was that time where, in fact, they're more out of fear that um, Donald Trump was going to change regulations that were going to um, eliminate temporary status for immigrants and refugees to the United States. So we did have that issue, um, I think it was the winter before last, and that's why I say it was about a year and a half ago. Um, at that time, I thought this could become an issue that, that uh, could be quite significant in the election. I don't want to preclude the possibility now. Uh, Bernier uh, obviously feels this plays. He feels it, it. perhaps Quebec is the area where if it was going to have any kind of resonance, it would be greater. We've already seen legislation uh, limiting people with uh, culturally identi- or religiously identifiable uh, outerwear of some sort being able to, uh, to work for the provincial government. Um, in provincial government activities. So I don't want to say it it can't be an issue at all. It could be an issue. But at the moment, um, Bernier's um, policy is not really catching on. We had the experience, um, I guess, in the last federal election. Kelly Leach, who's no longer in active politics, but Kelly Leach was making uh, charges about, particularly in her case, the concern about uh, hijabs and certain uh, outerwear worn by by Muslim women. if the question is, is this an issue that could play in Canadian politics? Yes. Um, but at the moment, I don't think it really is resonating, and I don't think it's likely to resonate in the immediate future because we no longer are, ha- are bringing in a significant number of, um, of refugees. The last provincial, the last federal election in 2015, of course, that, uh, that picture of Alan Kurdi, that uh, poor little boy who, who drowned just on, on the edge of the, uh, the Mediterranean, was, um, was, became uh, uh, very much a, um, a transitional impact on the, uh, on the federal election at the time. And the liberals at that time opened up the gates and suggested that, in fact, they would be more generous. Uh, the world's changed. Certainly the world in Canada has changed, and uh, we've accepted some close to 50,000 refugees uh, from war-torn areas, particularly from Syria and Afghanistan. Um, it's just not happening at the moment, and my guess is it's probably not going to play, but for Bernier it's important, I guess, and he, you know, he certainly has the right to, to bring it up. I'm not particularly impressed with, with his particular position, um, but if I was asked at the moment, I don't think it's going to have a, a transformational impact on the election. In saying that, Bernier is denouncing what he calls mass immigration, uh, extreme multiculturalism, saying that you know this is going to lead to social conflicts, potentially violence. Who, who is he speaking to here? I think, pro- well, there's, I don't want to suggest there aren't people that are, aren't receptive to that audience. I, I, uh, I just don't think that there's huge numbers of them. I think it could potentially play in Quebec. Uh, we have a seat projection with uh, lispop.ca that I probably talked about uh, on, uh, you know, in, in the past on the show. Um, and at the moment, I, the only riding where I, I think Bernier is likely to be successful is his own, and that's because he's personally popular there. Uh, there are people who are concerned about refugees. Ironically, they tend to be people in places where there aren't that many immigrants that are coming. Typically, in the big urban centers, uh, this isn't that much of a, a, of a concern. It's really in places where you have a relatively old stock kind of population, which doesn't have many uh, refugees or immigrants coming into it. There are places, in fact, that welcome refugees, places that are economically slower, particularly in Atlantic Canada, that would love to have more infusion of people into the population to stimulate the economy. Um, 
but yeah, they, it's it's multi-sided. It's not just about uh, closing down refugees. He'd like to lessen the. Um, we have a, something like in the neighborhood of one percent uh, immigration rep, uh, replacement uh, in terms of uh, of immigrants coming into the country each year. He'd like to lower that. I I, I think it is Quebec. Uh, but that's not to say that there aren't other areas where it might be an issue. But if I, if I go back to that uh, 18 months ago, I think there probably were people that were wondering at that time, people were very much jumping the queue. But it happens. We don't have a border with a country like Mexico or a country that's poorer. Um, and ironically, they were coming from a richer country, America, where they felt um, they felt unsafe and that their future was, was, was very much in doubt. Uh, for various um, court-related reasons, the, the judiciary in the states has tended to put stays on many of those uh, government policies uh, associated with uh, with President Trump, and that's part of the reason why there are relatively fewer people crossing the border at the moment uh, into Canada. Probably are few, and perhaps we should clean up some of the ways we we treat. Um, if you um, enter Canada at a non-recognized um, spot you actually have an advantage for admission rather than just meeting at a coming across at a border place. Uh, there are some things related to our immigration rules and legislation that perhaps could be modified a little bit. But um, uh, I, I just, at the moment, this just doesn't seem to be the kind of issue that uh, large numbers of Canadians are likely going to be motivated by. Um, but I can't say in Quebec, uh, there certainly is a, an, a, a reluctance to... Um, be sympathetic to multiculturalism, particularly in the smaller centers where you basically have a, an all-French population. We, in, in cities like Montreal, that isn't, isn't such a concern at all. I assume that that's what this is about. Bernier probably feels this is important to him. He left his party in order to campaign on it. Um, uh, I think the polls have him now down in the two, two, two and a half, three percent range of that. And that's not going to pick up uh, seats and have a real impact on on, on the government. It may, in fact, in a few places, however, deny votes that might otherwise have moved toward the Conservative Party, because generally people who are uh, hostile to more Im immigrants tend to be on the, the right side of the political continuum. So in close close ridings, and they, they are fielding candidates, I think, in most ridings, uh, the, the uh, People's Party, um, in, um, in, in, they may, in fact, deprive the Conservatives of a few... Um, of a few votes, and that may make a difference in seats. I just don't see the party really clicking at the moment. And in saying that, and we've got about a minute to discuss this, what do you think is the long-term prognosis of the People's Party of Canada? Are you thinking it's a one, maybe two election and then done? I think it depends on circumstances. Um, at the moment, I, I, I don't see it going very far. Bernier, as I say, he runs in the Beauce in the southern part of Quebec, um, and I think he's personally popular, and I expect him to win. Um, but that's because of him personally. He has not been able to um, uh, transform that to uh, to many other places. If I see the party emerging in Quebec, we may start to look at uh, at some other places. I think the issue could emerge, however. It, look, it emerged internationally, out of, really out of nowhere. It was all the immigrants coming in initially uh, from uh, from Africa into Italy and into Greece, um, and it, and it's transformed British politics too. Ironically. The, the people in Britain are pushing for Brexit now aren't so concerned about people coming from Africa and Asia. They're concerned about people coming from Eastern Europe as part of the, uh, the, um, um, as part of the, uh, the uh, European Union. And that's what, what's got them in trouble. If this could emerge if circumstances are such that there was mass immigration. I don't expect mass immigration from the U.S., and that's really the only place that we have a land border with. Most immigrants that come to Canada actually come in at Pearson Airport. They're people who are at least have, have enough resources that they are not uh, genuinely desperately poor. Um, 
and that they will be considered. And I don't want to suggest that the, the rules couldn't be tighter and that there aren't people that slip through the um, uh, through through the exceptions in the law. But this just is not an issue at the moment that, that resonates with most Canadians. Could it happen in the future? Sure. Um, but I think in terms of this upcoming election, unless there's a, a mass immigration or some trouble spot around the world, as we saw as a result of the Syrian civil war, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact in uh, this October. As always, Barry, we really appreciate your uh, insight and uh, commentary on the political happenings uh, in this country. Uh, have uh, a great day today. Thank you. Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Contract negotiations for Ontario's high school teachers have stalled. And the head of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation says bargaining can't resume before the beginning of the school year. What's going on? Well, school boards, union, government still in the very early phase of bargaining because they apparently disagree on what should be dealt with in negotiations with the province and what should be handled during bargaining with the school boards. Let's bring in our next guest. He's the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey Bischoff joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Harvey, good morning. How are you? I think I just hung up on him. Ah, that is my dumb move. I didn't think I pressed the button hard enough. And then when I did, I pressed it twice. Jacob is shaking his fist at me right now. Like an old man yelling at the clouds. How dare you hang up on him? Sorry, Harvey. But yeah, this is an issue that <laughs> I think we could all predict. And he joins us now. Harvey, sorry, I hung up on you. My bad. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so maybe before we begin uh, the the negotiations and why they've stalled, uh, let's clarify the process a little bit of how these negotiations work. Because the union is not only negotiating with the province, but the Ontario Public Boards Association as well, right? So at the central bargaining table, which is meant to handle sort of big ticket cost items, um, there, the government is represented there, as is the Ontario uh, Public School Boards Association, so the umbrella group for the school boards. Um, and in fact, it's another association when we're bargaining on behalf of our, uh, our support staff. So at, at each of those central tables, there are, there are three parties at the table, the union, the government, and the school boards. So what are the sticking points? What are we looking at? Well, um, it, it's our belief that, uh, as per the legislation, what should be negotiated at the central table are, are items of significant cost. So we're talking about, about salaries, um, uh, health and dental benefits, that sort of thing, um, and staffing. And the vast, vast majority of other matters that are found in collective agreements ought to be negotiated with local school boards at the local tables. The legislation lays out a two-tier process. There's meant to be meaningful local bargaining, um, and for some reason, the school board's association doesn't seem to trust its constituent boards to handle any of those matters that they've handled successfully for decades. So they're proposing that we have virtually everything at the central table. And has the school board's association told you why they want it that way? They really haven't provided uh, a, a useful explanation as to why they want to do that. I mean... I guess that's a question for them, but uh, given that the last round of bargaining under this legislation in uh, 2014 was not exactly successful, um, they should have learned something from that round, and they seem to have learned nothing. So where do you go from here? What are the next steps? So the the um, legislation lays out a process whereby uh, the labor board uh, holds a hearing, and we present um, we present. Uh, 
our reasons for believing items should be uh, central versus local, and the other side will do the same. And in the end, the Labor Board will issue a ruling that will make that determination. And I understand that's happening uh, sometime in August? August the 22nd is the date for the hearing. It'll be a one-day hearing for both our uh, central tables, and sometime thereafter, and um, you know, we don't know exactly, then the Labor Board will issue a decision, at which point we can actually begin the bargaining process. It really hasn't gotten underway yet. We're chatting with Harvey Bischoff, uh, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, as negotiations uh, between the union, the province, and the school board's association have uh, entered the, the the stalled phase, if we can put it that way. Uh, how confident are you that the school year will begin on time with no labor strife? Well, at this stage, um, with uh, virtually 100% confidence, uh, because at this point we couldn't even be, even if we wanted to be, and and we don't at this stage, but even if we wanted to be in a legal strike position for the start of the school year, um, that couldn't happen until until collective bargaining proper actually gets underway. So as long as we're in this technical phase of sorting out what's central and what's local, um, we couldn't even be uh, in a legal strike position. Are you expecting to be in a legal strike position if, if already out of the gates we're having difficulties? Look, I'm hoping that when we actually get to substantive matters, um, we will find that when we put you know proposals on the table that are good for Ontario students, uh, that uh, the other side is a willing and interested partner uh, in that. Uh, and you know we won't know until we actually get to that uh, to that point. Um, but uh, we go with uh, you know always with the hope that we'll we'll have reasonable partners in in establishing uh, um, the conditions for a quality education system. Earlier this month, Education Minister Stephen Lecce said that a deal would be reached with teachers before their contracts expire on August 31st. Doesn't sound like you're as confident as he is. Well, I'm, I'm uh, on the contrary, 100% confident that it can't be done given the process that we're in right now. I mean, we probably, at the best, will actually sit down and begin negotiating actual substantive items, you know, middle of September, late September. Uh, so, no, it's it's simply not possible under the current process. And, you know, that's uh, it's unfortunate that the minister perhaps doesn't fully understand that process, but even more so, it's unfortunate that um, the government took none of our advice. We We provided them input on how to create a more expeditious uh, uh, process through legislation. They they chose not to take that advice. We asked them to open up bargaining on the first available date under the law, which would have been March the 4th. They waited until April the 29th. Um, so we immediately served notice to bargain on the 29th. And then they have a 15-day window, which is the maximum uh, number of days before they have to meet with us. But they could have met with us a day, two days after we served notice to bargain. They waited until the last, the 15th day. Um, and, you know, one more thing, we, when it was clear we were going to have a dispute about uh, what was central and what was local, we offered them an expeditious alternative dispute resolution mechanism. This could have been settled weeks ago. They rejected that offer as well. So I'm, it's, it's really unclear what they're thinking. Harvey, appreciate the time. We're plumb out of it, but uh, I appreciate you uh, spending a few minutes with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Harvey Bischoff, President, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. <laughs> Doesn't sound too too confident that a deal is going to get done before the start of the school year. At least teachers will be in school because they can't go on strike because this process hasn't even gotten off the ground. Great start. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.